Dr. House, thank you so much for being here today. I uh, really appreciate your presentation to our chapel a minute ago. I think it was a fine, fine balance for our audience. It's what a friend of mine refers to as a lerman, a little bit of lecture and a little bit of sermon all blended into one and perfect for us. Thank you so much. We have kind of a standard set of questions that we ask the scholars when they come in and visit us so that we can kind of probe into their lives and learn from them. Uh, one thing we like to know is about your uh, testimony of conversion. Um, I guess you can hear me back there. Um, yeah, whether you want to or not, you can hear me. I became a Christian uh, growing up in a Christian home. My grandfathers uh, and grandmothers, who I knew into adulthood, um, the grandfathers were, con were adult converts. My, grand my grandfather House was converted when he was 60. And so my dad was not brought up to go to church, but he, he, he came to saving knowledge of Christ. He was discipled by a pastor I'll probably mention later. And so our family was very much connected uh, to the work of the Lord. Parents were uh, Sunday school teachers, Bible teachers, uh, committed people. Uh, when I was seven, I was the fourth of six kids, and so I saw uh, older brothers and sisters, of course, who had, who had professed faith in Christ. Um, I realize now that I was probably uh, older than my years and what I was thinking about. I've come more comfortable to say that. So I was talking to my dad, quite frankly. I don't recall what uh, Pastor Bill Skelton had said that morning that, or even the last few weeks. But I talked to, uh, to my father uh, in our kitchen between church service. He explained to me the faith, what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and then I, um, we were in Southern Baptist Church, and so I, I responded to the invitation. I still remember our pastor asking me questions about what I believed and what I was ready to serve Christ. And so I was, I was converted at that time, very much in a good local church, good Christian family, uh, a pastor who um, cared deeply about his people and was mistreated for many of his efforts. And so uh, our church was not very, the church was tremendously kind to me growing up, not so much to some of our pastors, but Bill Skelton was a faithful, faithful guy. And how did God in his providence move you uh, toward a ministry in the academy? Um, to ministry first, I was raised in a community that expected you to be an adult when you were 18. Um, the old days way back there because for instance uh, for my grandparents eight grades of education was what was available in that community so they thought we were skating to get to be 18 in adults rather than 14 or 15 uh, so high school graduation to a lot of the people there was a terminal degree and so they thought you'd be an adult so they would ask you pretty early on what you thought you were going to do with your life and how it was going to work out and want to help you get there. Because, of course, uh, in the, uh, they were still living under the assumption that you might actually live in the community. So we'd like you to be useful and helpful and do something that would be, you know, promising. So they asked you a lot. And um, I remember going to a, a, our associational youth camp when I was 12. And the, they said you should pray and ask God what you should do with your life. And it may be anything. They weren't pressing one thing or the other. 
and it became clear to me about three months later uh, in, a, in a service in our church that uh, having prayed about it, God was calling me to, to preach, which is the only kind of ministry I knew. We didn't have youth pastors. We didn't have children's ministers. Uh, my people hadn't been to college and seminary, and so uh, I felt called to what I saw. Uh, local church pastors, probably many of them bivocational, that sort of thing. So I felt a call to preach. Uh, that experience, I suppose, was the way uh, it was given to me in a way that I would understand it. Um, it was a very clear thing. It was um, an intellectual thing. It was an emotional thing. It was a physical thing. I've heard similar experiences described in books and things, but that's so it was very very strong and very stark, and the community was supportive from the first. Uh, and by that I mean even, in, so in high school and things, I started preaching, particularly our association had 37 churches. Uh, I think when I was a junior in high school, 11 of them did not have pastors, and so the, so the, so the director of mission would send me out to preach in these places. And they put up with it because I really didn't preach very long in those days. Bring him back. We got out for lunch. Um, and so, you know, there's, I still meet older people who remember those days. Uh, I'm doing a funeral at home or something. And they were very kind to me. So, I, you know, it was, it was in that kind of atmosphere that by the time I was a senior in high school, they gave me that, the interim pastorate that I, that I mentioned. Um, that church is doing a lot better, by the way, once they got rid of me 40 years on. Um, so... I thought I wanted to be a pastor. That's what I knew um, as I was in college. Um, I thought I wanted to be a missionary, a foreign missionary. Um, in those days, that meant you, if, if you're Southern Baptist, you went to one of six seminaries, and, and I went to one of those. Um, I think it was very helpful that my Ph.D. supervisor, John Watts, had been a missionary to uh, India, uh, Beirut, Lebanon, and to Rusha Khansim, uh Switzerland all those years. I didn't want to do PhD work. I, I can't say that you everybody ought to do it. Uh, I had two master's degrees. I had been in ministry since I was very young. It's not new to me. It was now a 10-year or more project. And so I felt very strongly at the end of my first year or the fall of my second year that this was the route that I was supposed to go. I was not pleased with that. Um, I like to learn. I like to study. My mother had died in my third year of seminary, so I think there was part of me thinking, whatever living you're going to do, you ought to get on with it. Uh, there are lots of, you know, lots of factors go into all this, but I, again, felt a very strong sense that this was what I was to do, and um, that was probably in my, and then I, I continued on. My last year only of Ph.D. work did I think teaching was what I ought to do. That's where I ought to go. And again, that came as a strong, strong sense that whether it was mission work or in the United States or whatever, I ought, I ought to be uh, pursuing um, a teaching ministry. And so that's the way I describe it. We were reminiscing a little bit earlier about a conversation we had when I was still a pastor and considering making the move to full-time theological education. Um, I think you were chairman of a search committee, maybe even chairman of the biblical studies area at Taylor University. 
And uh, when you called me that day, uh, I think since that I was in a bit of turmoil trying to figure out what God had planned for me for the next step, you took probably an hour and a half to answer a ton of questions and to give me some very helpful counsel that I am very grateful for. Uh, you know, God places us where he wants us, but on a human level at least, I'm not sure I'd be sitting here right now if it weren't for the conversation you had with me that day. Um, it, we have a number of men and women in the group today who are in a similar situation uh, and could use some guidance as they make plans for their futures. Uh, what advice do you have to the students in our PhD program as they plan for ministries in the church and in the academy? It's easy to give advice from where I sit. Um, I think God's been good to me in a lot of ways. But if I just go back and say it, when I went into the Ph.D. work, uh, I can honestly say I did not enter it for any personal gain, any kind of personal pride. Now, I, I acquired some of that as I went, but I didn't go in it <laughs> for that. And I, I've noticed a lot of people want to be called doctor or they, re, or they really respect somebody who has a doctor or something at, or think that they won't be a real boy or girl if they don't have it. Um, I, I think that's the wrong attitude. If you're already in it, I also trust the sovereign God if you're already in it to say, well... Um, you could repent of that and find out he wanted you there anyway, or you could repent of that and say, I'm glad you realize that because you won't be finishing this degree. Uh, so I, I think you have to start there. And these days, and any days, if you, you should start the PhD saying, I will be satisfied to learn what I will learn from this time if I never realize a penny from it. Because there aren't jobs out there, as you know. And you look at a guy like me, you say, well, a corn cob like that can get a job. Surely I can. I, I wish you well. Um, I think that uh, you, you have to be satisfied. Now, that's, that's one thing. And then I think, second, you have to be satisfied always to be ecclesial. That is, it may be that you would, would just be a pastor. I, I'm involved with the Center for Pastoral Theology, which are a lot of pastors who have doctorates or are getting them and are working. Todd Wilson um, is kind of the head of that. He and uh, Gerald Highstead have written a book on the pastor theologian. Craig Bartholomew's new book on biblical interpretation and hermeneutics it stresses the ecclesial nature of a Christian doing uh, having a PhD. So you would have a rich and full life uh, pastoring a church, serving a church um, in any sort of way, being a resource. Uh, my wife has an MDiv. And it's a pretty quiet thing around our church, but she just kind of sneaks around with her theological knowledge. Um, I always encourage her to go ahead and use it. So you could do that with a doctorate. And then I think the academy, uh, however you define that, that's everything from this to, you know, whatever you want to define, uh, is a good life if you can get it, but has many hard aspects. And I... I got a fortuitous email from, from a former student of mine who served as a missionary in Africa. And he, he thanked me for telling him the following. I don't remember it. So faculty, it's a good thing for us to recall sometimes that if we say the right thing, it might be helpful whether we remember it or not. 
he said, we don't need any more. We have a lot of PhDs out there and a lot of good ones. Um, I'd say particularly New Testament church history. We've got a lot of good ones. Um, what we need is, is teachers who want to spend time with students, who want to shape people. And so I, having done this since I was a teenager, I just always thought we were supposed to put together a life that included teaching, preaching, writing, helping. It's a fabric of life, really. It's a way of life, not, um, you know, a bunch of segments. So I would encourage you then to say, am I, am I led to seek an academic position to be very patient, to be very open and remember that you're always an ecclesial person that um, and um, there's a world of need outside the United States and so forth. Uh, so do not feel like you uh, are substandard if someone else gets a job and you don't. Um, how can I put this gently, kindly, truthfully. Outside of the Southern Baptist Convention, having a doctorate from Southern Seminary has never helped me one bit. Um, I trusted God at that time. Why in the world did I stay where I was? I didn't have any money. Um, my only child had this. She's, she'd been fairly considerate through the years, but she had the nerve to want to be born about the time that some of those decisions had to be made. Um... I had a supervisor who wanted to work with me, and the Southern Baptist seminaries in those days were tuition-free. Could be again, but that's another subject. Um, I, um, so a lot went into that, and I remember uh, taking a trip with family to New York City, and I visited a Bonhoeffer site, a Union Seminary. At a, I'm, I'm sounding like God talks to me all the time, but I really don't mean it. Basically, I just felt, did I need to go to one of those places to be satisfied for doctoral work. And I told the Lord I would go where he wanted me to go. And I can see the good in where I got my doctor, but it never puts your uh, southeastern PhD, not likely to put your just in a op wide open search like the one. Um, uh, so you have to trust God. But I can't tell you. I mean, you can't plan these things. Everybody's plotting these things out. You're going to do this, going to do that. Then they're going to do that. And then you take this job and then you do that. And then, whoo, you land at the top. Um, just denominationally speaking, I, I was a member of the SBC Executive Committee for 10 years. We did, we did all the denominations business except the three days it was in session. I learned how to sue the Southern Baptist Convention and why it's very hard to do. Um, so somebody said to me, well, how did, you, how did you maneuver to get on this job? I said, I graduated from Southern Seminary. I moved to Indiana to take a job at an interdenominational school. Our pastor was on the nominating committee. He, he said they need a layman to serve on from Indiana. I said, well, I'm not quite a layman. They said, well, answer the question. Do you teach at a Southern Baptist school? No. Do you, do you pastor a Southern Baptist church? No. Then you're a layman. <laughs> That's maybe the definition of secretary. But anyway, I was a layman. So, uh, yeah, I moved to Indiana and took a job and met a pastor and that's how I schemed and dreamed and figured out all this stuff. And, um, how did I get a job at an interdenominational school in the North? They had, they weren't as, I was the chairman when I called you, they, they were not diligent. They had, they had fooled around until late summer. 
they did not have someone and they offered me the job. Uh, my friend Scott Hafen had recently been asked how he landed a job at the University of St. Andrews. I'll answer for him. He was mistreated at a place, applied for a job and got it. So I end up saying, look, we trust God because he's trustworthy. And I told my son-in-law is an associate professor now at a college. Once you start your ministry, there are fewer things harder than being an assistant professor. Um, the pay is usually low. The hours are usually long. You, you're going to have to, you're often supplementing your salary. Um, at, at, at ETS meetings where we've explained to graduate students what the salaries are, we've heard audible gasps in the room. Um, I took a pay cut from my church in Kentucky to teach it at Taylor University. Um, but it's been good work and things have gotten uh, better. Uh, so I'd be patient, work hard, understand, uh, and accept God's faithfulness uh, as he accepts yours. Your testimony in that regards a lot like mine. I, I feel like I made all the wrong decisions if I were trying to plot a career in academia, and God graciously puts us where He wants us, and I thank Him for that. I've been reading your book on Bonhoeffer's seminary vision, and over the years you've obviously developed some pretty strong convictions about how theological education ought to be done. And, and there are a few words that leap off of the page in your description. It needs to be personal. It needs to be incarnational. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the biblical and theological basis of your view and uh, any concerns that you have about contemporary trends in theological education in light of those principles? Yeah, I, I, I'd be happy to take follow-up questions. I think education is one of the areas where Christians have just frankly accepted from the culture the system without really thinking through it. Like it just is, like air outside or something. Um, so the American way is, is, to, is to treat the degree like a product. The student... Um, is really the consumer and the faculty is the is a producer and this is going on all over the country so americans would say the the faster the cheaper the easier i can buy a good product and use it for the longest period of time that is what i'll do so um certainly um some say well so sort a couple of ways of thinking about this, just even educationally, because a lot of non-Christians are thinking. It's one thing to say we will define our degree by the minimal accepted requirements set by the by the accreditors. It's another thing to say well, we 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 will try to do what we think is good education. Period. Um, so, my main concern is for how we are forming uh, pastor teachers. And so I know seminaries do lots of other stuff. And 
So at the end of that, when Bonhoeffer started, was in part of a church renewal situation, what do we do? He, he asked a pretty simple question. How, how, you, how did Jesus do that? How did, the, how did God, the Son, do that? And how does that square up with the models he saw and the models I see? Uh, starting with about Genesis 11 and 12, when faced with a worldwide horrible situation, in this case worldwide sin, God starts over with a single couple. Um, with Abraham and Sarah. Now that's an astounding decision to make. Or Jesus, God the Son, spends nearly all of his time, including when he's doing miracles and preaching, all that is shaping those disciples, see. Um, those parables that people can't understand, he tells them, I'm, I'm shaping you. And shapes the 12, shapes the 70, never really does any international mission, which is astounding, really, when you think about the Logos. Now, he was thrilled when they came and asked, right, and later on, John, and he does send the disciples to the ends of the earth, but he, he focused on those 12 and maybe on those 70. And by the way, the extraordinary thing to me is he, he put up with Judas, and I wondered, I, I thought for years, I felt so sorry for whoever had to go on mission with Judas, because it went two by two, you know. I finally realized that person probably never complained about a ministry partner again. You think it's tough to be all right? Man, I, I went on a preaching mission, but Judas couldn't keep his hands out of the bag. Yeah, I, man, I, um, have that on your resume, partner with Judas. So, but Bonhoeffer goes one step further. What is the church? And I mentioned today, Christian people are the body of Christ. I mean, you know, I can reach out and touch Chuck here and, that, that Christian families and Christian ministry and Christian education in the Bible is, is, is face to face to face to face. And Jesus' rinky-dink method, this little bitty small-minded method, has led to us being believers eventually. So we believe that the, the, the family kind of atmosphere and the, and the teachings is the best, I think it's the best way to shape. Now then the question comes into, uh, do I appreciate the fact sometimes we have emergencies? I do. I was a beneficiary of emergency education. I was bed fast uh, summer before my second grade year uh, with rheumatic fever and all sorts of things. And it's the only time I know in the community that the second grade teacher came for an hour a day to make sure I would not miss all of second grade. I do believe in emergency education. And, and where are there places where we can't send people? We do what we need to do to get the word out, hoping that immediately we can send people. And I, I, I'll just put a point on it. Uh, some of our strategies entered in. I thought it was a mistake years ago when the Southern Baptist decided they'd stop sending Ph.D. graduates to teach seminary and Bible college. I believe then, I believe now it was a mistake. It was counter to everything other mission agencies were telling us. And now we have an emergency. I say we send people as soon as we possibly can. We send people. I'm not against evangelism, not against church planning, I'm not against any of those things, but also I think um, you take Africa right now where the student wrote to me from, his concern is that, as we say, it's a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. And these, and they're already starting the non-personal educational methods there. So 
if you start asking me about education, I'll start telling you about people. Um, I suppose I've had six different computers in my office. I'm very happy to be in contact with people worldwide. That's been a great blessing. For some of us, the idea that you could pay one cent a minute for international phone calls is a, continues to astound me. I've paid 40 bucks for one call. for. I, so I'm very grateful for the ways that technology helps us keep in contact with face-to-face. -face. Uh, if you get a job teaching at a college, um, it's one of the reasons in your MDiv you should have taken preaching and pastoral counseling and all that stuff because they're going to ask what kind of do we hand over our young people to you. They want to know what kind of person you are. And so while I recognize emergencies, I don't think it's an emergency for a student who lives on campus and doesn't want to get up at 9 o'clock to take an online class. Just, I'm, uh, we're here amongst friends. <laughs> and so once the emergency becomes a normal, we get to lazy pretty fast. But to forming the people is what I'm trying to talk about. And your students owe it to one another to form one another. See, that's the thing that I see, and all of us have a mentoring group at Beeson. Our students take care of each other, and they know they're responsible for doing that. Um, you do learn from your students. Um, I, I have taught Borders dissertation on my shelf. Uh, I, I learned from reading it, I guess. Um, <laughs> It's, I'm sitting there, but see, I know Todd, and I'm, I'm proud to know him uh, for what kind of guy he is. And he's a better man than his, dis, than his dissertation is as a dissertation. And I'm not, nothing wrong with the dissertation, but he's a better man. So, to me, when the day comes that we help people understand that person-to-person -person education is not a preference, but as a conviction, we'll be where we need to be. And let me say, Baptist people ought to understand that if they really believe the congregation equals the, is the church, it's the people. Uh, I don't know. So I get on my soapbox, but it's the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh, and he was face-to-face -face and body-to-body -body with his people. And those fishermen go from 12 to 70 to 120 to us. So the method works. Uh, I wish it was faster. I'm like Paul. I wish everybody knew Christ. Uh, but I've, I've tried to learn to accept my role as being enough because God's got a big operation. Um, so, you know, I meet you in strange ways through the years, and here we are again together. Um, I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I also think it would require us really asking a serious question, who needs to be in pastoral training? Open enrollment has not done us a favor. Um, lots of stuff happens to people in life, and a lot of it's tragic, some of it's discouraging. But if we think something south of 50% of our graduates are not in what we we're trying to shape them to be. That's the American way. We'll throw lots of personnel at it and see what happens. But it's, it's, it's fairly inefficient. 
nothing's perfect, but what are, what are we striving to? Not what we prefer, but what do we think ought to happen? How, how should this go? And uh, chapter six of my book, I even show how large, you don't have to be a small seminary to do this. Large seminaries organize to do everything, including meals like this. So we can organize to be face-to-face, personal, students-on-students, faculty-on-faculty. Um, and if you're a faculty member, you're thinking, this just sounds like one more program if you're going to load that on between four, you know, I think I could book you in from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. mid, you know. Um, now it has to be a natural part of, part of things. So it's a whole program. But I think it's how we ought to think, and I think it's how we ought to think in our churches. The pastors need to... to Pass on the word to others. Thank you. Uh, don't be alarmed. At twelve twenty, a lot of people are going to leave because they've got twelve thirty classes. Uh, I want to turn it over to you now. To see if you have any questions you'd like to pose to Doctor House. There'll be a microphone roaming around the room, so just raise your hand, and we'll get the mic to you. Please do tell your name and your program. Thank you. So, Dr. House, I'm Jerry Lasseter, PhD student in Old Testament. Um, and I also run our distance learning program. So just to, just to let you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> so um, my question is, I would, I would agree with everything you just said about person to person. But my question is, what about the New Testament letters? I mean, wasn't Paul discipling at a distance when he wrote letters to Romans, to Corinthians, to, to Timothy? Thank you for the question. I, I want, I'm going to say before this, I did not pay him to, to ask the question. We have misunderstood what those letters are, and they in no way help distance learning. Because they were not mailed like we get letters or send them. They were carried by members of the community to other members of the community, opened together, explained, asked questions, and so forth. So uh, I've got a footnote to that in my book. This is what Bruce Winter, who's an expert on this, Frank Tillman, several other ones, have helped me understand. So um, it was more like Christmas presents than it was like mailing. I hope Southeast will mail me a check. <laughs> now, there's lots of ways of being personal and things, but you, historically speaking, I wouldn't take any comfort in the epistles end of it. Um, so again, I, I think we have to determine, uh, and even then, what does John, what does Third John say? That's an extraordinary little book. I would write more of it. I, I would rather speak face to face. So again, it would be more like you sent Chuck and uh, Bruce here with the information to their house, unfolded it with them, and explained it to them. That's why I'm not against all distance education. There's a lot of it that's personal. We send a person there. And they have one another as students, and they have that sort of thing. So I, I'm not against 
uh, teaching at a distance, like if they haven't come here, we won't do it. It's a very apostolic thing to send people. And so I'm, I, I certainly believe her in, in that. But uh, I was helped by others to realize the letters bit, which I have seen written up and talked about. It really doesn't apply, as best I can tell, to, to sheer computer, you know, technology-only driven education. And you can ask questions about Isaiah, too, if, if you want. Edgar? Dr. House, Edgar Aponte. Uh, I'm in the PhD in theological studies here with a concentration in systematic theology. And the question is, I was reading recently about uh, your kind of resume, and I saw different institutions with different ties, with different kind of denominations. Can you explain a little bit to us about your background, uh, your theological background, heritage, if you, if you may? My mother was Methodist growing up. She, she agreed to become a Baptist to be married to my father. Um, though she had been baptized as a believer by immersion, she was forced to be immersed again. The parents uh, never thought that was right. They resented it. I think she resented it as much as a Christian can and still be right with God until the day she died. So the parents, well, I, long and short, of, my dad asked me one question when I was prepared to go to Trinity Episcopal School for ministry. Uh, he said, are they Bible people? That's the most Baptist thing of all. And are they Bible people? And I said, they were. And he said, then it'll be all right. Because I have found through the years, if people are on the same page with Scripture, that's why I started with 2 Timothy 3 today. It's so foundational to me. You and I could disagree on what the Scriptures say. Um, but always say one of us is wrong. Right? Scriptures are correct. Uh, scriptures, verdad, you know, truth. So we, we, we stand there together. So, and then with charity, we understand how best we can work together and where we can't. Always wishing we were working together, knowing the day's coming when we absolutely will at every level. So the Bible issue was so foundational for me, and that's why I wrestled with it so hard, being a student at a seminary, where that view of Scripture is not upheld. That I wrestled with until uh, it was settled with me and became very, very important. But I've, again, have come to understand that people in different denominations are there for different reasons. If they ask me to come and teach the Bible, I'm willing to do that. And the theology... It's strange, isn't it? They're not as different as they want. The, the first, is it the 1644 Baptist Confession and also certainly 1689? They're trying to show that they agree with these other Christians, not how they're distinctive. That's very interesting, isn't it? How they're in line with the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. The first thing the Westminster Assembly was told to do was to square it with uh, the 39 Articles. Go read Robert Letham's book on it. It's very interesting. So we share a great deal. We do have differences, and we should not minimize them. They do matter. But we are working, if we work from the Scriptures 
and from the great tradition and the rule of faith, I think we'll, I think we'll always be brothers and sisters so that I could say to the Episcopalians, you're going to reach a different group than this one, than, than we're going to reach, if, if, you're, if you're Baptist, friends, Presbyterian, and so forth. And I think the day will come when a whole lot of Presbyterians and Baptists will be together, if not in a denomination, all sorts of shared work. So the Bible, the Bible thing is absolutely... Then life situations will give you opportunities. I was not offered a job in the Southern Baptist Convention when I went to Taylor. So when I went to Taylor and I was offered a, a job here, for instance, I, I did not feel led to take it at that time because I was, I was home and with the group that I needed to be with, helping a wider group. Um, the Episcopal thing was part of the, everything that I said. This was one of the two evangelical institutions in the Episcopal Church USA as it existed then. It was the John Packer, John, or Jim Packer, John Stott kind of Anglicans. When I was in seminary looking for theological uh, help, we were getting it uh, as conservative students from um, Presbyterians and Anglicans mainly. So I had already been predisposed to say these are Bible people. Uh, I had been through a, a, a terrible personal time in which doors were closed to me and these people wanted me to work for them. So... Um, I, I, they wanted me to work for them. We wanted to work together. I, I respected their evangelical Anglican tradition. And it was a tremendous experience for me to live and work in a community. We were face to face. We were with one another. And I just thought I had suffered for being a conservative where I was. These, these conservative Episcopal students, imagine a guy presenting himself for ministry knowing that at the end of the diocesan process there would be a psychiatric exam for everybody and being told because you are conservative we're going to do that psychiatric exam first. I can't begin to tell you what some of those students went through and thus the kind of forgiveness they offered later. So I have great respect for them. So um, it's not just if those people will have me if their standards have sunk so low that they will have me, then I, I, will, I will consider it. But are they Bible people and that sort of thing? So I'm, I'm in the broad evangelical tradition represented by John Stott, by Jim Packer, by Carl Henry, um, by Presbyterian theologians of all types, and now coming along after a period of time, Southern Baptists who are, who are with it too. My name is uh, Shane Shaddix. I'm in the Historical Theology Program here. Uh, you mentioned in passing earlier the uh, Pastor Theologian um, Center with uh, Todd Wilson and those guys. And that's becoming more of a discussion, I feel like, among uh, theologians and pastors. Everybody kind of defines it a little differently. Um, and um, I'm in you know, theological studies here, but also getting to serve as pastor, seeing myself long term in a pastoral role. Would love to hear just kind of what you mean by that. What's your vision for a pastor theologian? Well, a, a pastor has to be uh, a wealth of theological formation. Because you're going to have everything from a funeral for a child to a funeral for an octogenarian. You're going to have you're you're going to have everything from A to Z because you're dealing with people. So the entirety of your theological understanding will be used. 
Um, you have to be a person of missionary and apostolic spirit. And you have to be a thinker, studier, learner because you will be speaking to the same people somewhere around 200 times a year. Uh, nobody's got a bag of tricks or a bag of sermons for that. You go to the Word and you teach it patiently and, and going forth and um, people like William Still and James Phillip and John Stott and people like that. You, it's, it's a lifetime. So... For me to be a scholar, uh, I, I am sent here by my, how can I put this, from my home church, from the very beginning, Newtonia Baptist Church, to right now, I, I, I realize I'm representing my family, I'm representing the Briarwood Presbyterian Church and the, and the friends there, and that I'm coming to other Christians here. So everything I do has to be from a faith standpoint, a reason standpoint, ecclesial standpoint. Frankly, some of the best stuff I've read on this subject has, is written by uh, James Smith and other people at the University of Notre Dame. How are we going to be a great Catholic university? And if you just feel in Christian or Baptist, you'd be asking the same questions. How do we do that? But we do it from the heart of the church. Uh, believe we can't compromise over here, and we're going to do these things uh, over there. So, so to me, to be an ecclesial theologian means it's going to take everything I've got. I'm going to have to keep learning and if God so saw it that I was going to need more than other people, so I had to do the Ph.D. so I would know more uh, at that time, then so be it. But also when you teach students how to think and you offer them, other op you offer them different options, you don't shirk any duty, but you have to think very seriously through these different critical opinions and everything else so that you can know what is said so that you can give not a pat answer but a good answer to it and an answer of faith to them. Uh, because faith is not antithetical to thinking, to what Catholics typically call reason. So you're in a big integration process in the church. You're trying to take the Bible and theology and everything you know to teach them the Bible in a way that shapes their lives. And you're going to be living amongst these people and seeing their, their growth and development and harm and good and and all these other things, and you're going to be applying their lives to the Bible over and over again. Not the, not their, not the Bible to their lives. The horizon of reality is the Bible. You're going to be putting their lives up and shaping them by the Bible. That's Chris Wright's point. You're going to need everything you know now and you're ever going to learn and you're going to keep going. Um, my grandfather kept sheep. He was a shepherd, and he wasn't as involved as a lot of people. But if you think a shepherd sits on a hill and watches sheep, you don't understand. To feed them, help them, birth their babies, all this other stuff, man, it's, it's inconvenient, it's hard, and it's exhilarating. And then you do it all again next week. That's a pastor. That's the part I miss, seeing the kids grow up, seeing these different things uh, happen in the daily lives of the people because my students kind of come and go. And I've been assigned kind of an age group at church. But even that, we've now had three persons widowed in the last year and so forth. Does that make any sense at all as to your question? You're, I once thought I knew what I was going to need in ministry. I'll tell this really quick. I took a course in Baptist denomination when I was a student, a BA, because I had to, because I got a scholarship. And I thought, I will not need that. I'm wasting that. Fast forward to 2004 when I'm named the academic dean, associate dean, so, so forth at uh, 
Beeson Divinity School, uh, our Baptist denomination person quit. Uh, was an adjunct, wasn't going to be able to do it. I couldn't get anybody, it was too late. So I, having been a member of the executive committee, knowing how the whole thing works, I decided, well, nobody else can do it. I'll take this on. So I, I, I went to the files and started getting those Baptist denomination notes. And I tell you again, I, I think I've told you now every time, somehow in this, in this talk, I've told you every time I think the Lord's spoken to me directly. <laughs> I thought you didn't need that. God's a funny person. Thought you didn't need Baptist denomination. Thought those notes weren't going to be useful to you. Thought you didn't need to take that, did you? 30 blooming years later. You're, we're going to need it all. I hope I don't need that again, but we're going to need it all. Would you express your appreciation to Dr. House?